Hi, and thank you for tuning in to the Mind of the Right podcast. My name is Stijn van Rijen, and I'm joined here by August Verelze and Matthijs Mittelstedt. We are going to tell you about the far right and its consequences to society. In this podcast, we are going to look at the motivations for people to join right-wing extremist groups and why these groups are so dangerous for society. You will also be able to hear about the experiences of two interviewed ex-members of the scene who were willing to be part of this podcast and tell us their story. Uh, A disclaimer beforehand, this podcast will cover sensitive and violent content, so be aware of that before listening. Can you both introduce yourselves real quickly? Um, My name is Scott Ernest. Um, I am a former white nationalist and I basically uh, left the movement about, uh, I'd say five years ago, you know, give or take. Uh, And uh, initially I left quietly uh, due to uh, being really sick of of the violence in the movement, Uh, but over the past few years, I've changed a lot, and I've actually become an activist. And uh, I work with uh, many people like uh, uh, Vicky there, as well as Christian Piccolini, on uh, trying to get other people out of the movement. Okay, thanks. How about you, Victoria? Uh, yeah, my name is Victoria Drennan. I kind of was raised in a white supremacist household. My my mother and father were both pretty much involved in the movement. I was raised in Eastern Berlin, Germany, um, around the 80s. When the wall fell, uh, we came to America. And um, from there, we moved around a lot. Uh, family was pretty racist. Uh, as you might imagine, as I became an adult, I became fairly racist myself, got involved in the movement. I was very active. Um, At some point, uh, I decided that I couldn't hide the fact that I was a queer individual, um, identify as non-binary, and uh, it kind of was an awakening when I realized some of the violence around me wasn't for any other purpose than the sake of violence. Uh, When I left the movement again, I, I tried to just put it all behind me, but my past caught up with me and I realized that the only way I'm going to be able to, to solve these issues is if I actively face them. So people like Scott and Christian Piccolini actually gave me an opportunity to take my experience and, and bring it to the, to the battlefield of um, combating extremism and radicalism. We will now explore what the alt-right is as an ideology. The alt-right stands for alternative right, and this is a collective name for multiple far-right and white nationalist movements. Alt-right originates from Richard Spencer, who, in 2008, found the term. He wanted to create a social movement that brought together right-wing and far-right socio-political movements. This includes neo-Nazism, white supremacism, anti-semitism, anti-feminism, and separatism. Generally speaking, the central idea of alt-right is the central position of white men. 
The presence of the alt-right is most notable on online forums, where they spread their alt-right ideas and apply recruitment tactics. This includes platforms such as Reddit, Fortune and Twitter. Additionally, alt-right organizations set up their own forums such as Stormfront. Scott, can you explain to us what Stormfront is? Stormfront wasn't itself an organization. It was, it's, it's a web forum. It's like Reddit or 4chan or any other web forum. Uh, people go there uh, to, to push their own things uh, as well as recruit people on that site for their own things. I recruited for the offline uh, Pioneer Little Europe Kalispell organization I, I helped lead uh, through Stormfront. But Stormfront itself wasn't an organization. Their influence in the physical world is also very notable, looking at rallies, like KKK rallies, and alt-right motivated attacks. Attacks like Christchurch mask shooting in New Zealand, where in 2019 Brandon Tarrant killed 51 people in two different masks. This attack is famous for him live-streaming the attack on Facebook. Brandon Tarrant was later found to be part of an alt-right organization. This attack was seen by many people as a part of the increasing alt-right extremism. The Enders Bering Breivik massacre also is a well-known alt-right oriented attack which took place in Norway. Breivik killed 8 people using an explosive fan first and then shot 69 participants of the Workers' Youth League, a political youth organization. It is important to understand this culture and what organizations do to bring people in and what motivates individuals to become part of such a group. It is important to note that the link between the physical and online world is very thin. I will now expand what exactly the alt-right does on the web and how they use social media in order to recruit, demonize and radicalize. In general, the internet is used to spread propaganda, communicate and for the recruitment of equally minded people, especially younger people. This is because more than others, the youth is socialized in political ideologies on social media. This is one factor that makes them more vulnerable to recruit. Furthermore, the internet is used by the alt-right groups to create a group identity. This is done in order to keep the group together and to create a shared environment. It is, however, important to note that the group's identity does not necessarily have to be the same as another group's. In fact, there is a lot of rivalry between online groups and a lot of groups have their own forms. This identity that a group can have includes different types of tropes, among other things. Tropes are words and phrases that refer to racist slurs. Examples of such tropes are the triple brackets which are a way to refer to someone with a Jewish background 
1488, which refers to the 14 words of an alt-right slogan. The slogan is, we must secure the existence of our people and the future for white children. And the use of the eighth letter of the alphabet twice, which stands for Hell Hitler. Radical alt-right ideas are also normalized on online forums, which in turn promotes the radicalization of members. This is also done by the spread of memes. Apart from normalizing their radical ideas, memes are also used to spread their ideology as a whole. Is there any collaboration between alt-right forums and organizations? There's not actually a whole lot of collusion. In fact, uh, different orgs have different forums, like Daily Stormer has their own forum, TRS has their own forum, and they absolutely hate each other. VNN and Stormfront absolutely hate each other. Uh, Reddit, uh, 4chan, I mean, all the different uh, forums are just forums. So it doesn't matter what your ideology is or what groups you're a part of, you can go to any forum. And you might have your preference, which is why VNN and Stormfront Buttheads, as well as TRS and, and uh, Daily Stormer. Um, but in general, uh, you know, uh, orgs do occasionally have their own forums. Uh, yeah, I mean, everything you said, this is perfectly correct. I mean, they're, the, the more spread out, um, and I did want to say this, because a lot of people will say, um, you know, you take down one website, three will pop up, so what's the point? Um, I was recently speaking to somebody whose kind of job is to investigate the, the, the spread of messages and propaganda. And they said that, you know, if you take down one website with a hundred people, well, five more will pop up, but there's only going to be 20 people on each of these sites. And as Scott said, I mean, the infighting amongst these five different groups is now going to be tremendous. So the ability to spread a single cohesive message is, is nullified. And if you take those five and you break them down, well, now you have, you know, 20 different groups, and the, the infighting is even more tremendous. So I definitely want to say for anyone listening, um, and then for you guys, breaking down the, the cohesiveness of, of single groups is, is, good, is good activism. We will now look into some theories surrounding extremism. The first theory that we will explore is the loss of significance theory by Mark Webber. Mark Webber actually calls this the significance quest theory in one of his studies which we researched and the main idea behind this theory is that radical and extremist behavior is used by people to restore a personal sense of significance which they have lost. Um, Weber says that this uh, restoration of significance tends to um, is the core of many previous causes for extremism or causes that were previously thought to be the root which is things like restoring honor, uh, righting an injustice, and things like that. Weber believes that all of these things are rooted in the restoration of 
personal significance. The main focus or the main um, path to radicalization as described by Weber is that the radicalization starts when a person or the someone in their close social group is humiliated. The humiliation in a social group, as an example, was would for example be that um, a person who has a great big family, say several cousins and things like that, and one of these cousins or someone close to them would be assaulted or robbed or beat up by someone of, say, a different skin color, for example. According to Weber, that would essentially be humiliating for people and it would make people feel, like the people in the social group that are prone to radicalization, feel that that is an injustice which they have to right, which they have to restore. And they think that by essentially doing harm to others and by harming people of a different skin color, ethnicity or sexual orientation, that they will restore the significance of, in this case, their social group or their friend circle, which has been lost due to this humiliation of being beat up or being mugged. Weber also says that this works in personal circumstance and the idea behind that essentially is that instead of someone in the social circle of a person prone to radicalization gets beat up, it is rather the person themselves. So say if someone is bullied by people of a different skin color or gets mugged by people of a different skin color or things like that, that they would then feel humiliated as they have lost, they have been hurt, they have been shown as weak and that would sort of isolate them socially, that they would feel that they are now weak and an outcast from society and that in order to become, to come back into society and to be relevant or significant once again, they have to uh, do these extremist things, follow these radical ideologies and things like that. Weber also states that the more insignificant people feel, so the stronger or over the stronger the humiliation is, or that the period of time over which humiliations happened is longer, then people will become more extreme. So if we go back to our previous example from the personal circumstances, if someone is, say, bullied for their entire school career by someone who has a different skin color, this resentment harbored over these many years will lead them to be more extreme as they feel a lot more insignificant than someone who just happens to get mugged by someone of a different skin color. Weber also states in many of his studies that Another very big factor for radicalization is uh, isolation. 
so that people feel that they do not have a community or a group that they belong to and that this sense of belonging is what they lack and that they are often radicalized because radical structures can give them this sense of belonging. A study often cited by Weber is the study by Kruglianski, which gives us the three drivers for radicalization. These three drivers are essentially a need, which Weber or the significance quest theory states as the desire to be someone, the desire to have or restore personal significance. Then the second driver is the narrative or rather the ideology. For our podcast, we use the ideology of right-wing extremism. However, this can also be religious extremism or political extremism and things like that. It's just the idea that gives them someone to blame for their personal significance, for their loss of significance, for their feelings of inferiority and things like that. The final driver that we have is the network. The network is essentially an organization of like-minded people, which ties back very much into this wanting to belong to a group, wanting to have a sense of belonging and just being left alone. And this network, this organization of like-minded people is people who are supposed to support you and who are supposed to help you with the idea and achieving your goal, which for us, or in our case, the networks that are discussed in the interview is the message board Stormfront, or as August previously mentioned, things like Reddit and 4chan, basically where all this communication goes on. Was there a specific event that led you to become more active in the scene? Uh, it, uh, I think that a lot like uh, if you're raised um, like Christian or, or like Muslim, and then maybe you leave that faith behind, you still always kind of instinctively practice the, the upbringing that you were given. You still celebrate Christmas and Easter, Ramadan and stuff like that. And you might partake in some of a lot of the moral structure. But it was the same way. There were many periods in my life where I wasn't actively a white supremacist. I wasn't like engaged in white nationalism, but I was always very prejudiced. You know, I, I was given a lot of rhetoric about black people and Jewish people. And I was able to kind of see that my, my prejudice was manifested. I would see um, a black person drive through with a loud stereo. And to me, that would confirm every single thing in my head that I had been taught about black people. Or, you know, I would hear um, a Jewish sounding last name in charge of a business. And that would just reestablish all of the anti-Semitism of my childhood. Um, and I felt after President uh, Barack Obama ended up getting elected, I think that was really when my brain kind of realized somehow that I needed to be more politically active uh, in, in that racism. And I, that's kind of where I started to, um, to seek out groups. Before that, I was mostly just a racist person Scott, could you tell us about your process of joining the movement? It wasn't a really a choice necessarily. So when I when I first met April, uh, it was due to a personal issue that she was having with with uh, activists that were anti-white nationalists. 
basically they were attacking her daughters. I objected to it and I met, met her and her family. From that point on, everything that I did, I'm not exactly sure where my mind was, uh, but you know, it basically was, I, I fell into the rabbit hole rather than chose to go into the rabbit hole. Um, I, I kind of put it in my mind that uh, that these people weren't as bad as people are making out making them out to be, and I ignored the bad things. You know, even at my worst, I was relatively pro LGB. Uh, I generally didn't really care about uh, interracial relationships. Um, Jewish people were not exactly my biggest issue. Um, I, I kind of got involved in it basically as a friend of the family and uh, started started uh, uh, drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak. Um, so it, for me, it was just quite accident. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't uh, oh, I'm gonna become that. It was uh, one day I woke up and I was a white nationalist. Uh, what methods did you use to recruit people? Um, most of my recruitment was either we would go to campuses and we would post down flyers. We would try to start um, campus groups. Uh, we tried to we we tried to create a, a white culture club. Once we would go to parties, just college parties, and then you know we would just be there. Um, we would go to regular bars all the time and kind of establish that. Um, we would do counter protests, protests. Uh, we had blogs. I mean, like Scott said, um, the internet, uh, especially websites like 4chan, 8chan, to some degree Reddit, um, a lot of these places are, are great for finding people. You know, you, you talk to somebody who's in Los Angeles and they're like, man, I just, I really don't like the liberalism in the area. I want my gun rights. And I just, I don't really like immigration. Well, I just happen to know somebody who's over there in one of the groups in LA and I'm like, Hey, look, I'll get a hold of a friend of mine and then you should go check them out. A couple months down the late, you know, down the road, they're, you know, they're wearing hateful patches and using the N-word. Like it's just another word in the lexicon. Mm -hmm. Recruitment is a very passive thing, honestly. Usually just the presence of racism is often enough to bring people over. Is there a generalizable profile for new recruits? There are a couple different characteristics, but I, I would say like the most common um, are often people who are loners, who have some kind of a weakness that can be exploited. Um, people who, who are having family troubles, who are angry. Uh, people who, um, who are having trouble like kind of fitting into society. Um, and then there are other people as well, uh, egotistical people. Um, people who find themselves thinking themselves to be greater and, and often mocked for it. Uh, the, the internet debate bro kind of person. They'll find that they, they're very intelligent, but they're also extremely um, crass. And these people often are then ridiculed and the movement comes in and scoops them up and says, hey, you know, we appreciate your intelligence. Don't mind them, they just, they don't have the intellectual capacity to really appreciate you. And then I would say that anybody with any kind of a social weakness that can be exploited, um, we can engineer that to, to build upon that.
um, grooming uh, is definitely the way that we do it. How are women viewed in, within the movement? Sexism and homophobia is definitely rampant in the movement. Um, I mean, women are, it's, it's a very patriarchal, um, to use that academic term, it's very patriarchal. Men and women have very expected positions. Women are, for all intents and purposes, expected to be barefoot and pregnant. There's a strong rhetoric where they say that um, every white woman should have four children so as to, to continue to populate the white race. So any white woman who isn't, of course, pregnant with four kids um, is not doing their job. Um, that's their existence. That's, that's their sole purpose of living. Um, and homophobia, uh, again, it, it goes contrary to, to that principle. And did you feel equal to your male counterparts? I don't think any woman in the movement ever feels equal to their counterparts. But I think it generally gets put down as that equality is a dirty word in the movement. Um, you find the women who, you generally find two kinds of women in the movement. You find the women who embrace it, and they enjoy being submissive to uh, their male counterparts. They find that in inequality to be a good thing. Um, I mean, blacks are inferior to whites, women are inferior to men. It's just how it is. The final theory that we are willing to discuss is the theory of social deterioration by a Polish scholar named Stefkowski. Stefkowski argues that as there are events which cause society to deteriorate, the membership of alt-right organizations and or rather extremist organizations increases. The example that Stefkowski uses is the example of the 2008 economic crash. However, we can also use a more current example, which would be the COVID-19 crisis. The main idea of Stefkowski's theory is that these social events, especially things like the economic crisis, lead to people falling on hardships or socially hard times which leads them to turn to extremist organizations either in frustration because they are looking someone to blame for the societal downfall or for their personal downfall which would tie right back in with Weber's theory of finding or restoring personal significance or if we take the COVID-19 crisis for example People are feeling lonely because of the social isolation and social distancing measures. And this loneliness would lead to turn would lead them to turn to extremist groups such as groups they would find on Stormfront or 4chan in order for them to have a community, a group, which would according to Kruglianski's three drivers, provide them A, with a network, which is an organization of like-minded people, in need because of their desire to be part of a group, to restore significance to their very own personal life. And if they would turn to things such as Stormfront or 4chan, 
the ideological narrative would then also be provided on these websites. This is a historical trend that we can observe, especially after World War I, where soldiers came back from the fronts and all of the fighting to an America ravaged by the Spanish flu epidemic. And this once again shows that when they were back then with all the economic and social hardships that they had, these soldiers who were left alone by the government because there was no mechanism of caring for their PTSD or shell shock turned to extremist organizations such as the KKK to have a group or a supporting surrounding in order for them to cope with whatever feelings of insignificance or quest for restoration of their personal significance they had. So after the end of World War I and also World War II, we see a very large increase in numbers in the KKK and later on neo-Nazi organizations. This is a trend that we can also observe through other American wars, such as the Gulf War or the Iraq War. Uh, do you think the COVID-19 crisis has had any effect on the far-right ideology? What, what we're seeing is, it, it, so the far-left and the far-right both do freak out when economic uh, problems start happening. Billionaires are actually pushing that because they're pushing the idea that, oh my gosh, the Democrats and, and, the, uh, and the, the scientists they're trying to ruin your life. And so, so now all these poor right-wingers are doing exactly what the left-wing does, but they're doing it because they want those luxuries. Uh, and unfortunately, the, this crisis is currently expanding the, uh, the right-wing side of the crisis. And they're, they're, they're able to use these lockdowns as a, oh my gosh, they're taking away your li personal liberty thing rather than uh, a they're trying to help everybody thing when it comes to the far right and radicalization and recruitment being like going up you find that a lot of the people on the right um, they espouse things like personal liberty private property and things like this uh, freedom of speech these are all amazing tools um, to to recruit people and you say well you know I mean I, I want to use racial slurs in my own time and I mean, you want to, to go and you want to get your hair done. I mean, these are just personal liberties that, that we, we espouse. We, we want your freedoms and they're taking away your freedoms. I mean, look at the Democrats. They want to close everybody in. And you find that their recruitment into militias, like the armed militias that are, that are harassing and threatening the governor trying to do the best she can in uh, literally a pandemic. Um, with unemployment that's never been seen next to the Great Depression. And the, you'll find that as these fascistic, far-right radical things, you know, like armed militias and, and honest neo-Nazi recruitment start to rise, you'll find groups like Antifa, anti-racist groups, watchdog groups will start to counter-protest these things. And as people show up to counter protest they become in contact with you know 
elements, you know, like Marxist rhetoric and stuff like that. And of course, naturally, they kind of go down into that category. So, um, but I, I would say one thing to note is that you might also find that as right-wing extremism grows, so does left-wing um, movement grow. As often left-wing movement, um, the, the more radical elements like black bloc and stuff like that is often reactionary to the growth or presence of fascism or, or fascistic tendencies. The main threat that comes with right-wing extremism is the violence associated with it. We would now like to show how ingrained it is within the movement. Victoria, what was your experience with violence with, used within the movement? I don't want to go into any particular details about things I've done, just honestly for my own, my own safety. But I will say that violence is a very normal part of white nationalism. You may find some people who themselves deem themselves scholars and they spend more time reading, but it's very hard to find anyone that's been in the movement longer than a couple of years who hasn't committed some kind of act of violence or has been adjacent to something that I would imagine would be deemed some form of terrorism. Um, and the higher you go into the more violent or radical areas, the, the more likely it is that you come in contact with extreme violence um, and often unapologetically so. How does the movement perceive extreme acts of violence, uh, such as the massacre by Breivik in Norway? I happen to actually have met Breivik uh, before on Facebook. Uh, he was using the name Andrew Berwick. Uh, he was a Facebook friends list, uh, on my Facebook friends list for a short period. Um, that was my first, uh, the, f the first time I ever got really in my head, why am I in this was after Breivik's attack. Um, I even used that when I was recruiting for the PLE. Uh, I'd actually ask people, so what would you do if somebody uh, in the PLE's daughter, uh, or kid, whatever, became, you know, quote, communist? Would you do like Brevik uh, and, and shoot them? And it's, a, it's surprising how many people said, well, if uh, their parents didn't do anything about it, I'd have to. And, and uh, several times I told people to please leave town. Uh, that we weren't, they weren't going to be allowed. So yeah, unfortunately, uh, there was support for Brevik in the movement. Uh, yeah, definitely on our side, we looked at a lot of these people um, as either heroes or buffoons. Um, it depended kind of on how it was done. Um, there was kind of a sliding scale on how we appreciated it. There was a gentleman from um, the, uh, I believe it was the Aryan Nations who shot up a, uh, a Jewish school with uh, Nikolishnikov. We kind of looked at that person as a bit of an idiot, but there was a gentleman who turned, uh, he had his 88th birthday and he went into a Jewish museum, a Holocaust museum and started shooting people and was inevitably killed by law enforcement. Uh, and he was a hero. Um, we, we thought that that was dying with honor. Thank you for listening to the Mind of the Right podcast. After all the research we did, 
we found the best approach to counter right-wing extremism is to prevent radicalization. This is best done by educating people and engaging in conversation. The organization Hands of Ire was founded by Scott and Victoria. This organization helps members get out of the alt-right scene and integrate back into society, as well as to contribute to the preventing of new members joining the scene. If you are interested, consider going to handsofire.org. Handsofeir.org. We would like to thank Scott and Victoria for sharing their experience and contributing to this podcast. And once again, we would like to thank you for listening.